Good afternoon. Welcome to Books Sandwiched In. My name is Martha Gill. I'm president of the Friends of the Library. It is a particular pleasure for me to introduce our reviewer today. His name is Marshall Stair. He is a practicing attorney and a councilman. Turnabout is fair play. A hundred years ago, I was a teacher of his, and today he's going to instruct me. Marshall, thank you so much. Thank you, Ms. Gill. Uh, I wasn't really nervous until I found out that uh, my teacher was going to be in the audience. Uh, it's pr pretty tough back in eighth grade. <laughs> but I uh, do want to thank the library for uh, inviting me. I've come to this event a number of times, and uh, it's certainly an honor and a, a privilege to be able to lead uh, the discussion today. And it is a discussion. If you have any comments or questions, don't hesitate to interrupt. Uh, I don't have a lot of expertise on this, so your comments uh, may be more meaningful uh, and thoughtful than mine. So please don't hesitate to speak up. I am going to try to leave some time at the end. Uh, the title of the book is What Then Must We Do? And the author is Gar Alperovitz. And What Then Must We Do doesn't tell you much, but then also on the title it says Straight Talk About the Next American Revolution. So that might give you a little more idea of where his political leanings are. And if that doesn't, at the bottom it says, democratizing wealth and building a community-sustaining economy from the ground up. So I think that gives you a little more clear picture of his political leanings. As a uh, disclaimer, a political disclaimers, uh, <laughs> and for a uh, politician, typically the way to become real successful in, in East Tennessee is not to give a lot of lect anti-capitalism type lectures. <laughs> uh, so I just want this as a disclaimer. Uh, I, I did not uh, choose this book. Uh, I, I was actually pu pushing for Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> I was sort of more up my alley. Um, but uh, I am interested in economics, and Emily said this is a, a book about economics, and it is a, a very interesting topic. I mean, in general, it's about economic inequality and, and how to address that problem in the United States. But basically where I want to go today is to talk, really just sort of go through the book and, and talk about the book. First off, he goes through the the problem, and then he talks about why the typical solutions aren't working. And then he talks about, and then he basically gives a number of examples of what he feels are the solutions to this problem. So that's basically going to be the organization of this lecture or discussion. You know, in, in the title he mentions the American Revolution. I think that's a little bit misleading. And I've listened to some lectures that he's given on this book, which really helped me better understand uh, what exactly he's trying to do with this book. Just to give a little background on him, he's a, a political economy professor, but I think he would really emphasize also that he's a historian and that he's also worked on Capitol Hill. So while this is sort of a big picture book, he does understand the nuts and bolts of legislation. He does understand the nitty-gritty, the dirty side of politics, and that he understands that, he's experienced it. He's not just sort of an academic. His take is he doesn't like state socialism, even though if, when you read the book, it seems like there's a number of examples where he, he pushes for that. 
his main problem is the corporate capitalism structure. So where he starts from is that if you don't like corporate capitalism and you don't like state socialism, what is there? And he quotes Margaret Thatcher, who said after the fall of communist Russia that there is no alternative. I think it's Tina, T-I-N-A, there is no alternative. And I think he's trying to push back against that, that there is an alternative and give some examples and sort of plant the seeds for a possible new system. And he starts off in the introduction in the first chapter. I mean, they really, really slaps you across the face of some of the problems uh, that we're facing, really, really hits you hard with uh, what's going on in America today. And I've, I've got a few slides to sort of highlight some of the problems he's talked about, that he talks about. This is one, it's the share of the income for the top 1%. It went down, and they talked about sort of this healthy period uh, after the war from 1945 to 1970 where real incomes of the middle class really grew, the economy grew. But after that, there was a problem, and the gains in the economy really started moving to the top income earners. This is a graph that shows productivity with real medium family income from 1947 to 2011. You see from 1947 until sort of the early 70s, they're, they're pretty closely linked. The idea is that as the economy grew, so did the middle class in the United States. But at some point there was a split and it, and it continues to grow. And I think he would sit here today and say, we, we've got a great economy. Our economy is producing a huge amount of wealth. The number would be, you know, $200,000 per every family of four. So the economy is great, but the system is broken is that we, it's not producing the results we need. And one number he throws out is that 400 individuals in the United States now own more wealth than 180 million Americans. So 400 people, I don't, I don't know if we could get 400 in this room, but we might be able to. I mean, it's pretty astounding when you think about that number. The top 1% has gone from sort of in the, the 70s from 10% of the income to 20%. That means the, the bottom 99, their share of the income pie has been reduced by that much. Uh, when compared with other affluent nations, we're last in inequality, last in poverty, last in life expectancy, last in infant mortality, and... Uh, mental health, obesity, all these things that, that are real problems. So he sees it as a serious problem, the, the economic structure we have. Uh, and it's really important, that, and he emphasizes, it's not, it's not just a political problem. He doesn't think, and this is a person that's been involved in politics, that's, that's run campaigns, that believes in things legislators can do. But because it's such a long trend, over many different uh, types of administrations, that it's, it's a systemic problem. And that needs to be changed, and it's very difficult to do that. And, and because there's such long-term trends, that it's not going to be solved by politics as normal. And he doesn't go into this, but I, you know, just for, for discussion's sake, there are some people that uh, don't see... Uh, this as a major problem. I think most economists agree 
that income inequality is growing in the United States. I think there's pretty widespread belief, but, but it's not total. There are some that argue that it's demographic changes. Remember, most of this data is from the IRS, from income tax returns, which are done by household. You've got more households with two income earners, and that pushes that category up. Some say it's changes in the tax structure. Some, and this is a quote from Chairman uh, Bernanke, says, without the possibility of unequal outcomes tied to differences in effort and skill, the eco economic incentives uh, for productive behavior would be eliminated, and our market-based economy would function far less effectively. So, and I think there's pretty widespread agreement that that is true as well, that you have to have some carrot so people will work hard and invest so that they will have potentially a better life than those who do not. One of the other interesting arguments I came across was that we shouldn't focus on income inequality because that's not really the, a measure of what's going on, that you should really measure consumption. Is there a consumption inequality? Uh, sort of the argument is that maybe one family makes 500000 and another family makes 75000 but if they both have two cars and a 2,500-square-foot house and can basically provide uh, clothes and, and medical care and those for their family, I mean, is, is that a problem? They're both consuming relatively similar amounts of goods. I think that's, that's an in interesting argument and just something I thought I would share. But in terms of the solution, before I get into some of the, the examples that the book provides, and that's the, the bulk of the book, he does really emphasize that the politics as usual won't work, and that's not what he's going for. He goes into a number of different reasons why. One, he's, he says that a lot of uh, his friends in the liberal community point to the New Deal and the Great Society. And his argument is those were, one was the result of the Great Depression and the other was the result of, of World War II, and that those, those type of events are very unlikely to happen again. He doesn't think those type of events will lead to such change. It's sort of interesting that he, to me, it's interesting he says that after it seems like we were so close to a similar collapse in 2008 and 2009 with the banking structure, or uh, the financial industry. So that's one of his arguments. The other arguments he says is that what about the civil rights movement, feminist movement, the gay rights movement? What about all these movements that have made tremendous progress over recent history? And he said the key difference with those movements versus this is that those were all about getting into the system. Uh, women, you know, couldn't get jobs equal to men. They couldn't get education, things like that. And it's about getting, you know, the gay rights movement, about getting into the system, the marriage system and the, and the benefits, government benefits that come along with that. This, what he's talking about, is just changing the whole system, a systemic change. And he said that's why it's different from those movements. He sort of throws around the word revolution, but it's really not. What he sees is an evolution. And what he does is he wants to provide some examples. I think he does this in the book, but he really embraces the fact that he feels like this is a very much an American process that's going on with these examples. That It's about innovation. It's about looking at problems. It's about finding where the market is not working and uh, 
nonprofit groups or government groups coming in to fill those needs in a different kind of way. But his premise is that the capital needs to be democratized. We need to find ways to spread that out to realize different outcomes that we're getting now with the current system where it's become so concentrated. And I think it's worth noting, and I read this in an article on CNN, is that there's a lot of people talking about this. And then in President Obama's second inaugural address, he talked about the biggest challenge of our generation was, and he didn't mention economic inequality, but it was about this American dream, the ability that you would be able to work hard, pay for your children's education, pay for retirement, buy a home, and live uh, a decent life, those type of things, that, that that dream is being threatened. Of course, President Obama uh, doesn't talk about doing away with capitalism. His model has been more tax-based, that uh, what we need to do is change the tax structure and then provide education programs and infrastructure uh, so that the citizens can become more competitive in this evolving economy. So I think sort of interesting to contrast the two. I think the author wouldn't disagree with any of that. I think he's, he's for all that. But what he wants to do with this book is to sort of plant the seeds of a potentially big picture change, a, a systemic change. In most of the book, he goes through these different examples where he feels the capital is democratized. I think the first one he goes into are worker-owned businesses. He says that this is a a growing trend. He talks uh, in the book of an example from a uh, steel mill that closed, and there was an attempt uh, by the workers to take that over. He talks a lot about the unions, and that's one reason also he feels that this change has to be different. I mean, there's sort of three different types of corporate capitalism. One, he would say, is uh, fascism. One would be one sort of the the late 1800s or 19th century through the Great Depression where there was very little regulation. There was just sort of unregulated, unbridled corporate capitalism. Then he talks about the type which he thinks we have now that's crumbling. That's based on this belief that we'll, we'll have capitalism, but we'll regulate it. And we've got powerful unions to offset that power balance from the corporations. And he's a big believer in the fact that the decline of the unions has led to the crumbling of this form, and that's why we need a new system. And he, I think he's from Wisconsin, uh, so he's he's dealing with those type of issues in the Rust Belt area. That's another principle he focuses on, on why we need a new system. And in the employee-owned example, he talks about the union initially opposed uh, the worker-owned push. But he said now that they've embraced that, that's one of his examples of something we need to foster. And one of my sort of frustrations with the book is, you know, there's not a real path on how to get there. We've got these big corporations, but how can how do the workers take over a business? Or and the only example he gives is make tax incentives for people um, when they retire or die to to give their businesses to their employees. He says that the most employee-owned businesses start because an owner doesn't have any family and basically sells the business to the employees. And to me, I'm thinking that's it's going to be tough to do on a large scale. It sort of seems like a pretty small niche 
of companies out there that could end up to be employee owned. Uh, but he also talks a lot about co-ops and credit unions. Uh, he mentions that if you combine all the credit unions, they have more capital than any of the five big banks on Wall Street, that there needs to be more emphasis on communities really exerting control over those and doing different things to get capital in, in different people's hands, not just make home loans and car loans, but to be creative. Corporations are a result of state statute, and the duty of the directors is to make profits for the shareholders. They have one and only uh, obligation, and that's it. And he thinks that, that, and some states have done this, there needs to be a new structure that allows the creation of corporations that don't only have to focus on that, allowing them to concentrate on profit, people, and the planet. And then to me that seemed like a very common sense thing that if, if a group of people wanted to start a corporation that focused on that, they should uh, have the tools in the statutes regarding corporations to do that. There's 12 states that do. Tennessee's not one of them, but it seemed like an interesting idea. Then he goes into, and this is particularly relevant, I guess, to me, since I'm involved in local government, uh, municipal and state strategies. And hearing after I've heard him lecture, I mean, this is a big part of sort of the process of how we get there is about uh, using cities and states as incubators to test different types of models. Uh, but one big criticism he has of the current system and his frustration being on council sometimes as well is that there's now, there's basically this expectation that local communities will pay these big subsidies to attract and retain jobs. And being on council, I, you know, I definitely feel that. But at the same time, there's an expectation, uh, I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, but of the public that the elected officials are are responsible for the economy, nationally, locally, and you hear it in the campaigns. That's that's what people talk about. I've heard governors say, if you're not talking about jobs, then you're, you're going to lose the election. He estimates there's between 100 to 200,000 spent in subsidies to companies to attract one job on average nationwide. And the problem with that is that maybe that community benefits, maybe they don't, but if you look at it nationally, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's a very inefficient way to attract a business from one area to relocate. Uh, you know, you have to build new schools, new roads, new infrastructure, and, and I think there's a lot of truth to that it, on, the, on the large scale. It doesn't. He gives one example. This, this one blew me away, but there was $242 million given to Dell to build a $100 million plant that employed 1,500 people, uh, and it closed after four years. I mean, that's, uh, I guess, an extreme example, but speaking on the other half, when you're in charge and people are expecting the economy to grow and people elect you and they, they want, you know, people, I think what a lot of people want, well, at least when I ran, they want the economy to be healthy enough where their children can stay in Knoxville, Knox County, and, and get a good job. And so, you know, you feel pressure and, and responsibility to make sure the economy is growing. So when there's an opportunity to bring in potentially good jobs, it's very difficult, you know, just being a local uh, official not to do everything you can to track that business. And he says he's not. this is not just about hypocrisy, but he's trying to have government use its money correctly. 
instead of subsidies, why not the local government get a piece of the action? And that would be a way to, you know, democratize the wealth where the ownership is with the people. He says, Adam Smith is dead. The biggest supporters of the free market are businesses that get all these handouts. I think everybody has experience with that, that the free market, you know, it doesn't exist. And then, even though he would say he's not for state socialism, he does have a lot of examples he thinks are important to replicate. He said there's already a lot of socialism going on with cities. There's publicly owned utilities, publicly owned hotels, and convention hotels. Uh, he talks about cities, when they build mass transit, instead of just relying on taxes, actually buying the land around the transit stops and then leasing it to businesses as a way to make money. Uh, as another way to get capital in more people's hands. He argues one reason why government-run businesses are better is because the CEO salaries are not as high. And uh, recently, TVA just hired a new uh, CEO. I think he's paid pretty well. <laughs> so so that, that, sort of, that sort of made me question that argument. I think the article I read, he's paid 5.9, and then it said the industry standard was 6-something, and I thought, Great discount. <laughs> and in one of his lectures, he mentions, you know, TVA, and he thought it was interesting. Obama tried to privatize it, and it was the, the red state politicians from Tennessee that, that really pushed to keep it public. He also talks about, and I sort of disagree with something, uh, socializing the airlines. Uh, he mentions a number of problems. He thinks the hub system's inefficient. It hurts uh, small cities because their tickets become so expensive. It discourages businesses from locating around those cities. I think that's a very real problem. It mentions the small seats and bad food. Uh, and then and then I thought it was sort of strange. The example he gives of the government's owning airlines is Singapore Airlines. But, I mean, you know, Singapore is a, it's a totally different type of country. I mean, it's one city. I don't think it probably has any domestic flights. Uh, <laughs> thought he kind of missed, missed the mark. I lived in Mexico in 2004 and 2005, and there, to me, my experience with uh, Pemex, which is the state-owned petroleum company in, in Mexico, is it, it creates a whole new set of problems when the politicians run the companies because then they take money out of the companies to do the different things they need to do, which in the short term works well, but Pemex had gotten into a terrible situation where it wasn't investing in and what it needed to do to continue its oil production. And eventually they had to invite in foreign oil companies to do the uh, research and development and to drill for oil in the Gulf around Mexico. So I'm sort of uh, hesitant about that. He talks a good deal about the banking industry, thinks that uh, should be socialized. He said, <laughs> we really have already done it once uh, recently. Uh, and it's sort of interesting. I, I never, It never seemed... Like, that was a question when all that happened in 2008 and the, the bank bailout, that why don't we just keep them? And I didn't really think of it either, but I guess that's just a reflection of our values that it would be difficult to contemplate that uh, the bank's being run by the government. But he talks about, you know, the free market people, and he, he quotes George Bush, that you know, says, I'm a, I'm a free market guy, but this sucker could go down. <laughs> and he didn't want to be the guy to let it go down. There is a state, North Dakota, that has a state bank that's been around 90 years. Uh, and he gives that as an example of what can be done. And just my short time being involved in politics, it's amazing how much 
banks drive development. If you remember before the crisis, condos were the thing, and people could finance condos, so condos were built. And then now it seems like apartments are the thing, and that's what's getting financed. And it, it just doesn't seem like the mix that probably the society actually demands. Socialism, uh, typically an argument against it is that it's inefficient, which is which I think he sort of concedes is true if you look at it sort of on a case-by-case basis. But he talks about where some of the inefficiency lies is if you look at the whole system, maybe each bank is sort of more efficient on its own, but the whole system, when it collapses, is a huge cost. 2.6 trillion GDP lost during the crisis. 19.2 trillion of household net worth disappeared. I think he's kind of got a point there. How can you argue this system so efficient when it has these huge crises that uh, that create these terrible problems? And with the banking industry, he really really argues the model we're currently under is all about tax them, regulate them, and we can do the programs to bring up the middle class, and that's the best system we have. He thinks it's clearly shown we're unable to regulate this industry. They're just simply too powerful. He's had experience on Capitol Hill, and even politicians on Capitol Hill just admit that the the banking industry uh, is too strong and they can't do anything against them. He almost seems like he's he's a really, really pure free market person. And what I mean by that is he quotes the conservative comments argue that if, if companies get too big, you can't regulate them. They control the regulation. And then uh, you try to break them up, but when you break them up, eventually they always get back together. And if you can't regulate something, then you need to own it. When these entities get so big, you can't regulate them. They have too much power. You know, they're too big to fail that, you know, it's, it's detrimental to the entire system. So uh, that's what he says about the banking industry. And he, he thinks that it's just a matter of time before there is another crisis the regulations are going to be rolled back. There's going to be more mergers. That's just a matter of time. The last one I'll go into, and this one is a pretty hot topic right now, is healthcare. And he talks about you know levels of pain. What he sees going forward, there's going to be an increased level of pain, and eventually that's going to cause some change. I think some of the problems we talked about earlier in terms of the stagnation, uh, stalemate, poverty rates staying the same, remaining at the bottom of affluent nations. Despite the economy growing, huge numbers of Americans living below poverty, not having access to medical care and some of the things uh, that we need. The healthcare, he's for a single-payer model. He thinks that's basically, you know, the government socializing the insurance industry, I guess is one way to say it. I thought the most interesting point he made on this was what he thought might push it in that direction uh, wasn't the uninsured, but it would be the employers. The pressure on employers to provide health insurance in a globalized market gives them such a disadvantage versus other countries where the companies don't have to provide health care that it would be the employers that really push for a single-payer system. Uh, he mentions Vermont as being very close to a single-payer system, and he thinks it'll be you know a checkerboard strategy if it works in some states that eventually, you know, would be adopted on a larger scale. In terms of uh, what I liked, uh, the pluses of the book, I thought it's a very conversational. Uh, the chapters are real short. I don't know if anybody likes that. <laughs> you know, 
There's, and there's even some pages with no words on them. You, you really feel like, <laughs> you really feel like you're making some progress. <laughs> um, but it's easy to read. It's conversational. I think it, it really addresses a challenging problem. So I, I think it's, and it's interesting and I thought it was a pleasure to read. My criticism of the book, uh, or what I thought, and it's just, again, my opinion. When I first read, it, I just thought, you know, he's, he sort of slaps you across the face with all these problems, and then he just sort of mentions these little things that are already going on, and I'm just, I just didn't sort of get it of, you know, what's, what's the path to get, to get there? Do we have a, you know, more, more Americans benefiting from the growth in the economy? And, and I thought that was one criticism. But when I heard him lecture on it, I watched some YouTube videos of him lecturing on it, and I understood that's really not his point at all. What he's trying to, to say is there's a system problem, but it's really too early to say what the next system is. And that he wants to sort of plant these little, these little seeds uh, across the country to see what works, which might be a model for a, a change decades down the line. You read the first two chapters and you think, all right, let's grab the pitchforks and head to Wall Street and get, get things done. And that's not really his point at all. He sort of, I think he would say it's the prehistory of a potential revolution. And he said it may or may not happen. So that sort of addressed that, that criticism I have of the book. That's not really his point. It's, it's to just to show, look what's going on. We need to foster this type of thing. And maybe that will provide a model for moving forward. I thought he could have also, one thing I thought that he doesn't do much of is, is address the causes of inequality. It's really interesting, some different theories on why that happened. Some talk about the, the tax rates. This is, a, I thought, an interesting graph. This is 1960 to 2004 of federal income tax rate by group. The highest lines are off the highest income group, but it's 99.9 to 100. And the red line, which I think is the fourth, is 99 to 99.5. So there's a lot of, a lot of these lines represent the very top. It's interesting. Some, you know, the tax rates uh, really have gone down for everybody, but dramatically gone down for, for the top income earners. But he doesn't really go into the causes. Uh, President Obama, he believes that it's a result of globalization and technology. That the middle class has suffered because either jobs have gone overseas or they've been re- replaced uh, by machines. That's what's caused this squeeze on the middle class, and he's you know trying to address it uh, with the tax issue as well as you know these programs for education, job training, and, and that. To me, this is a criticism, but I, it probably is unimportant to the author. But he doesn't seem to really address you know why this is happening. Why is the one percent going up so much? And I think there's some argument that it's the system's becoming more efficient. Anytime there's a high CEO salary made or, or paid or athlete or what have you, uh, someone's paying that salary. And there, the argument it always is that uh, that person is worth that. And there's some argument that the, the businesses and corporations are so big and the, the potential gains are so huge that having the right person you know, at the helm makes all the difference and is worth it. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like football. It's, what's really frustrating is when they don't win and they're still uh, making substantial sums. But, you know, I think, I mean, I think football coaching is, is not a bad, a bad way to look at it. I've always sort of think of, you know, if you look at the total wins and losses, they're always going to be equal. 
you know, if you look about the whole system. So why don't we just cap the salaries and we're going to end up with the same wins and losses? <laughs> I just think that's an interesting issue of why individuals are able to earn these exorbitant amounts. You know, is that the system becoming more efficient? You know, are some people worth that much more? I think the people in Alabama would certainly say uh, Nick Saban's worth every penny they uh, pay him. Well, let's open it up to questions. And um, First of all, I like, the, I like the review you did of the book. I, I just finished reading it as well. I think you did a really nice job in that and got the highlights of what he said. Um, and I don't know if you had a chance to look at the website I sent you the other day from the New York Times uh, study of, of, of uh, subsidies by municipalities and states to businesses, but that's a real transfer of wealth from taxpayers to industry, and it's startling if you look at that website. But more to the point, Marshall, is that um, – he talks a lot about the checkerboard idea and having, you know, a, a whole variety of things that are t being tested. It seems to me that you guys in the city council have a unique opportunity right now to kind of test three or four of those things. One, you've got the McClung warehouses and how you develop that, mm -hmm. rather selling it or, or developing it for yourself and, and controlling at least that that's always there would be an opportunity. And it's not a really, that wouldn't be a really expensive one either because mm -hmm. there's not much there except some land. Then you've got Baptist Hospital's buildings on the south side of the river, which could be a city-developed um, commercial development as well as a mixed-use condos. You've also got um, you've also got actually part whatever what, what's the, St. Mary's Hospital, the one that's the one that that Tonova wants to close. You know what if what if uh, Knoxville experimented with having a um, their own hospital in that in that area rather than being owned by private funds. And then the fourth thing is, and I don't like to hear this, but Chattanooga has a um, high-speed Internet system that goes through their utility system. And what if we would experiment with that here in Knoxville as well? Just uh, And then my last thing is, are you going to give copies of this book to your fellow councilman? And if, you <laughs> and, and if, you're, not, if you're not, I'll send one to the mayor anyway myself. Okay. So, yeah. Does everybody have another hour? <laughs> um, to, I guess, address <clears throat> some of those... Some of those questions, very, very good questions uh, after, after reading the book. Uh, one, in terms of giving a copy, I, I probably won't. I, all my colleagues know I did a, a book on this. I think council, I would probably, if I was going to give a book, it would be more about uh, new urbanism or uh, creating walkable communities and uh, density and those type of issues because I think that's where we, that's more our domain. Um, the administration uh, does so much, but we really are involved in, in land use and rezonings and working with MPC uh, and trying to uh, get, uh, you know, as Knox County grows, tr rather just have it haphazard, try to create uh, a Knoxville and a Knox County uh, that, we, that we are proud of and enjoy and, and that works uh, and that gives people uh, housing options and gives people uh, transportation options. Uh, that would be kind of the book uh, that that I would uh, want my colleagues to read more than <laughs> an anti-capitalism uh, uh, <laughs> uh, book. Uh, in terms of uh, development, the city, I guess you know, the city is is just you know we're. If you look back, why why do we have a city? I mean, it, it was created to provide an extra level of services to the to the people in the city. Uh, and that's primarily fire police and garbage collection. To take a step and to get into private development, you know, I just don't think I'm I'm there yet. 
that you know we've got a lot of private developers around. Uh, I think it makes more sense to work with them and, and to create things like the South Waterfront Plan where we can almost say what we want it to look like, how we want the buildings to interact with the street and let them get the financing and, and build it. So that's where I am on that front, and I think that's that's worked well with downtown. You know, we have used some different subsidies and tools, but we can push and create the type of development we want with those tools rather than doing it ourselves. Because like the McClung, I guess we could the city could develop it and try to lease it out and own it and manage it, but I think, you know, there's our developers in the area that have the expertise on hopefully how to do that, but we're going to be able to create an RFP that hopefully will sort of lay out you know, sort of the idea of, of what we'd like Jackson Avenue to look like. And we can get proposals, and it's not just an auction. It's not just uh, who pays the highest price, but it's about who presents a proposal that fits our collective vision of what we want uh, Jackson Avenue to be as a growth and connection of downtown going north. The high-speed Internet, uh, of course, we get that uh, quite a bit. I think what Chattanooga done is certainly commendable. But there's a couple of different things. One is, that, from what I understand, their utility is a little more directly controlled by the city. In terms of doing that, the estimates are around $500 million to put in that kind of infrastructure. To give you an idea, the general budget for the city is, is around $185 million for one year. The cost is, is tremendous and somewhat difficult to justify when there are private businesses uh, doing that. And I think government has to be very careful when it just starts jumping into industries. You know, if you think about if you ran whatever business, a printing shop, a restaurant, or a construction company, what have you, you know, and you pay your taxes, and then the government gets into your industry and starts uh, taking your business, I think you have to be very careful. And I think the, the other side is Chattanooga, I guess, made the argument that they weren't providing the service sufficient that their citizens demanded, and so they had to step in. But I don't get that feel yet in Knoxville. Of course, there have been problems uh, with downtown connection, uh, different buildings, and we're, we're working on that. But in terms of putting in a $500 million system for Internet, is just probably not there. I just had a comment, and it's, it's just an observation, and it's about corporate subsidies. And I think that, and I'm not saying that they're good or bad, but I think that we run the risk of creating a corporate culture that chases the best subsidies. For instance, I don't know why that Dell plant closed, but uh, before Volkswagen was in Chattanooga, they were in Pittsburgh, where they had received a slew of subsidies to mm -hmm. locate there. And when they ran out, they started looking for the next location. And that ended up being Chattanooga. So so then we ha I think we have to ask, when they run out in Chattanooga, are mm -hmm. they going to move again? Right. And is that efficient? Is, on, a, on a national scale, is that efficient? The, the system, just like you talked about, of subsidies and companies moving around, and then you have to create infrastructure in schools and what have you. And then they leave, and you've got empty cities growing cities, empty cities, uh, that that's inefficient, and that's the biggest argument he has against it. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, 
please visit our website at knoxlib.org.